and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host here on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love in the world. And our movie today is a personal favorite. This is one that I have been looking so forward to. This is one of my favorite movies of the 90s. It's a movie that never got the love and the respect that it deserved for a couple of reasons. We'll get into that. <laughs> It'll be very interesting if you don't know this part. But uh, the movie I am talking about is Arlington Road, the paranoia thriller from 1999. Absolutely one of the most harrowing and frightening movies I have ever seen in my life. And uh, so excited we get to talk about it. My guest here today, and this is a special treat because today we are bringing back our first ever two-time Staff Picks co-host. Please welcome back. He uh, helped me out for The Village. We changed some hearts and minds when talking about The Village. He's a screenwriter in L.A., a great guy, great opinions, always fun to talk to. Welcome back to the show, Brian Scully. Thank you, Mario, and I truly cannot wait to do this uh, podcast three more times so I can be the first five-timers club member i'm i'm very much looking forward to that oh yes i've already got your uh, celebratory jacket picked out for your five-timer introduction outstanding man you really know how to host a podcast <laughs> yes thank you for having me because i love Wellington road I've, I've loved it since i read the script back in 1998 when the movie had not yet come out but the script was actually available on a couple of websites that you could buy them from like scripts i think it was script city it was called and uh when i saw the movie in 1999 when i did a double feature of that and Blair Witch Project, my friend and I were just in absolute horrified hysterics, and I've never understood why people trash the movie. I've, <laughs> I've loved it so much for, for almost 20 years now, and the fact that we get to talk about it is going to be amazing. Now, I'm very curious. We'll get into the script part, because that's something I don't think a lot of people know about this movie, that this was a script floating around for years before it was made into a movie. But So you saw this with the Blair Witch Project. I'm just curious, which one of the two movies did you think was better that night? The thing is, I wouldn't know what to I, – I, I can't make that kind of judgment call because here's the thing. Arlington Road warmed us up, and Arlington Road definitely put us in a very severe state of disease because we – and I'm saying disease as opposed to unease because I feel like it's just like – the movie has a very bleak, toxic feel to it, intentionally so. And we we walked out of the theater around 10 o'clock at night. And, of course, this is when we were in high school. So we were <laughs> – my friend's mother was driving up to pick us up. And we just – we were in such a mood because of this movie. It just, like, brought us down to such a low place. But it was a place we really got excited about because we were just thinking thoughts dramatically that we hadn't conceived of before. And we were like – you want to you want to double dip here? Do you want to you want to like go for broke? Because apparently Blair Witch Project is really going to be scary and dark and and haunt us for the rest of our lives. Let's let's do that. Convinced her mother to let us do a double feature and come pick us up again at like midnight. And so we walked into the Blair Witch Project right away. And my cat's about to make a lot of noise. When we walked into the Blair Witch Project, it was it was actually the most amazing theatrical experience I've ever had. Not to make this about the Blair Witch Project, but I've never had an audience watch a horror movie where the entire audience was absolutely 100% invested in the not just the narrative of the movie, but the world build of the movie, the what what the horror was trying to sell. I, I'm telling you, the last half hour of Blair Witch Project had the entire audience shrieking. Groaning in pain of 
being so tense. Like my hand was white because my friend was squeezing it so hard. Um, we're talking just the most visceral reaction you've, you've ever seen a horror movie audience have. And I, I want to relive that someday. I'm still looking for that experience again. <laughs> um, so that was, that's my Arlington road memory is that Arlington road was part of a one, two punch of thriller, horror, excitement, and wonder. And uh, it's that's why it's burned in my memory so strongly because the experience of it the first time keeps being relived every time I rewatch it. And I'm rewatching it right now as we're doing the podcast. And I'm just like, I still get the chills over certain shots, certain moments, certain parts of the score. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. It's, it's uh for people who have never seen it before Arlington road, absolutely one of the bleakest movies ever with one of the <laughs> great cinematic endings. I mean, it, it would be impossible. I can't even imagine you as a, as a high schooler walking out of this movie and just wanting to talk about it. Just how young you were just because there, you probably had not seen many movies like this. We're going to spoil, no. spoil a little, we'll get to the ending later, but this movie does not have an especially happy ending. And it's like, it's brutal, even on a level beyond what you think it's going to be. It's just a, nasty horrible vicious movie and I, I i've said this before i show my kids horror movies all the time which is why you're a good father i'm a great father that's the <laughs> father of the year but like I, I show my daughter horror movies and suspense movies trying to see just what will stick what really gets under her skin what will bother her and I always say there were three gut punch movies that really affected my daughter. The first one is a uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs. That one really, <laughs> Silence mm-hmm. of the Lambs was a little, maybe a little extreme for her as a kid. But then <laughs> her two favorite movies that I've shown her are the original Wicker Man from 1972, Ooh. three, whatever. And this one, Arlington Road, the other one. This is her, one of her absolute favorites. And again, that's anybody who knows this movie knows why. This is a movie that you come out and you talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's and the thing is, when the fir- when the movie first came out, it was two years away, and not to like make it even bleaker in real life circumstances, but two years before the movie came out, I'm sorry, two years after the movie came out, um, 9/11 happened, and mm-hmm. this movie was a, I don't want to say an omen, but maybe I'll say a harbinger. It 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 foretells a lot of what we have become not just in the United States, but around the world. And, um, I feel like, like you, you showing your daughter this movie and the way she reacts to it now, it's not anywhere close to the way we reacted to it when we first saw it. Mm -hmm. And that's because the world was completely different. What we have become as an as as a as a society in America what what other people see us as all of these sort of socio political uh, I'm going to uh, uh what's the right <laughs> word for not good words let's not good things um this movie gave us before we even knew what we were it showed us what we were and no one really knew how to handle that. The reviews were not kind. The reviews thought that this was just a step too far, that this was um, taking a leap off the edge of reality in so many ways. And no, this is actually an incredibly realistic movie to see this movie through our current lens. 20 years later, this is, it's almost frightening how close this is now to how we regard ourselves as as a society. And I think that's why your daughter responds to it so well. 
It's funny you say that because I had an almost entirely opposite argument to you there. And this is only because you may be a little young for this other argument. Okay. Because the thing that I specifically remember about this movie, and for people who don't know it, this movie is about urban terrorism, about, you know, white militia, right-wing groups in America bombing things. And that was very much in the news leading up to 1999. I don't know mm -hmm. if people remember that. You, again, you may be too young, but that was all that was happening in the U.S. in the 90s. That was one of the scariest times of my lifetime. I remember this because this was the big threat that these, these militia groups, these people would stockpile weapons and the government would go in and try to stop them and there'd be all these fights. And there was these big anti-government things. So this was very much happening in the world leading up to 9-11. Again, you may see the world and, and this movie in a different lens since 9-11, but this movie was very much of its time because that was a very yeah. valid thing going on in the U.S. at the time. And that's, again, it's you listen you, like the the big story in the news now is uh, foreign terrorism but the, in the 90s again this was very much a thing in the u.s the the right-wing homegrown terrorist that was the thing mm -hmm. everyone was frightened of because it was happening yeah you had your ted kaczynski you had your timothy mcveigh you had uh the, you had the government catastrophically screw up raids and hostage crises like Ruby Ridge and Waco. Mm -hmm. um, you had situations where um, it truly wasn't us versus them of uh, what some would call patriotism and what others would call extremism. And I, I remember all of that, actually. I remember, uh, like, I, I wasn't old enough to actually appreciate what was happening, but I vividly recall things such as Waco, mm -hmm. watching... Um, Watching that fateful day when uh, everyone burned alive, uh, I think it was like what day fifty-eight or something of the standoff. Mm -hmm. um, I I remember those images, and the thing is, I remember not feeling anything watching them. Which, when I look back on, I, I'm almost scared by. I'm almost disturbed by the fact that as a child, you know, that should have actually affected me more. Um, and and I, I I was already desensitized to it. So it's weird that like, you as an adult, you were more of an adult than me uh <laughs> arguably <laughs> it's debatable you were you were so much more scared than i was and i, I just I, it was not registering for me whatsoever there's there's a, a couple real life tie-ins to this movie and i'm not sure are you even aware of this one are you aware of the tie-in between this movie and columbine high school um not off the top of my head but i think that's something that you need to talk about right now because I'm curious. I might have heard that a long time ago and just forgotten, but I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, this is something I absolutely wanted to bring up on this podcast, and this is, gets into uh, why this movie was not well-received. This movie has the unfortunate uh, distinction of coming out, like, literally right after Columbine. Oh, yes. And it was, it was yeah. supposed to come out earlier. Columbine happened in April of 1999, and anybody who knows that story knows how horrible it was, and it was all over the news. And I think this movie was supposed to come out like two weeks after that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I remember that. And it that. was quietly, they really, they quietly buried this movie because it's so close to Columbine, like what really happened. And this is what people, a lot of people don't know, is that Columbine, and I'm going to maybe blow your mind if you don't know this, but it was not a school shooting. That was a bombing. 
that was there's a kid Eric Harris and he was going to go out there and he was going to top the record set by Timothy McVeigh when he blew up Oklahoma City when he blew up the federal building that Eric Harris wanted to pull off this mass terrorism event he set these bombs up for his school and that was his thing he left all these diaries and mm -hmm. th that was his thing that was his homage he was going to break the record of Oklahoma City it was even scheduled for the same day a couple years later I think four years later but the thing is since his bombs didn't go off Everything, everything this kid plans, he screwed up. None, none, none of it happened. So it ended up being a school shooting because his bombs didn't go off. Mm -hmm. And like he was probably so furious because, like, if you read these books about Columbine, he did not want to go down in in history as a school shooter. He thought that they, they were the lowest form of life. These losers had no grand plans. And that is because the way Columbine was reported, it became a school shooting, even though it wasn't. It really was a bombing, exactly, exactly like this movie. And mm -hmm. that was the one thing that the investigators kind of knew. The public didn't know, but the investigators knew. So they, I think, persuaded the studio to kind of hush this movie up and don't publicize it and maybe move it back a couple of weeks. And that's the main thing that happened with this movie. It's so close to what Columbine was supposed to be that it just got absolutely buried by real life controversy. And they kind of hid this movie and they didn't get a lot of publicity. It didn't get marketing. It didn't get an audience. No. And that's that's the thing. That's it's just so unfair how outside events can affect movies sometimes. And that's what happened in this case, that that's really what happened to this movie. It's such a great, fantastic thriller. And it absolutely could not be a hit in July of 1999. It would have been horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, I mean, the same thing happened to uh, a bunch of other productions as well. Uh, there's one episode of Buffy that was going – Buffy the Vampire Slayer that was going to premiere, I think it was like a few days after Columbine. And it was about – it involved at one point a kid in the high school taking a sniper rifle to the bell tower. And uh, to not give away all of the plot of that episode, which is called Earshot, um, the, he was not going up there to kill anyone else. He was going up there to kill himself. But the, literally the image of the, of the rifle in the hands of a high school student on high school grounds was enough to make the WB shut down um, that episode. It, it did not air, I think, until the week before um, – the, the fourth yeah the a week before the fourth season premiered and what was even more amazing is that the finale of that season involved the destruction of the school because the big bad of that season mary wilkins uh turned into a gigantic uh you know old god snake thing that then got blown up by the entire school like the entire school was in on stopping um the uh, the big bad and they did it by blowing up the entire Frickin' high school. And the WB also went, oh, blowing up the high school. Mm, bombing the high school? Yeah, oh yeah, we can't do that. And the in, the season finale literally didn't air until the beginning of the next season because of that. Um, so yeah, Columbine affected many uh, productions, and that's just a second example. Okay, now um, what I want you to do is one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on for this podcast is what a lot of people don't know is this was a very famous script before it became a movie. And since you are a script writer, you work out in Hollywood, why don't you kind of tell people about that? Because this like it won a contest or something, right? Yes. So the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, also known as the Oscars, uh, Part of uh, what they do is they um, have what's called the Nickel Fellowship of Screenwriting. And back in the day, 
because uh, it's more it's more money now, and they sometimes have more fellows than than they did back in the day. Like it, it can vary. Um, I don't know the specific details right now, but back in 1996, it was I think. Twenty-five, I think it was a twenty-five thousand dollar fellowship for the year, um, where if you submitted your screenplay to the academy, and you were one of the five fellows that um, was selected, you were paid twenty-five thousand dollars by the academy to just write for a year. Your only requirement to have that money is by the end of that year, you will have written at least one screenplay and so the like the academy is uh you know you can say whatever you want about the oscars or whatever but the nickel fellowship program is actually really uh legit it's one of the it's one of the few truly legit competitions you could say you can enter and and know that something worthwhile will happen for you and aaron kruger wrote arlington road and submitted it in 1996 and he became one of the fellows and back in 1996, especially um, because the Nickel Fellowship program was still fairly new, it had only been around for I think eight years, maybe seven years before that. Um, a lot of attention uh, was thrown to the fellows from studios and production companies and executives and producers and et cetera, et cetera. And Arlington Road got snatched up so fast, and rightfully so. Um, it was also so different from most of the other fellowship scripts because the fellowship scripts tended to be what you would expect an Academy voter to respond to because the Academy members uh, – I mean the the ultimate fellowship committee members who did the final voting were the Academy members that you would recognize the names of, like even Marie Saint from On the Waterfront and, and Gail Ann Hurd who produced uh, Aliens. And, and you know, th- these are the people who, who, who chose those scripts. And – just like the Academy's nominations for the Oscars and the votes for the Oscars, they tended to be more on the dramatic side, but not like horror dramatic or thriller dramatic, more like just indie movie dramatic. Arlington Road totally bucked that trend. <laughs> um, and so that helped it have notoriety. And when it got picked up, it got put into production fairly quickly because the script was written and, and it uh, got the fellowship in November of, two, of 1996. And for the script to have gone into production in time for it to be finished in uh, 1998, before it was released in 99, but it was finished in 98, that is a very quick turnaround. Like, movies don't get made that fast from uh, the script being written mm-hmm. to finished. That, like, that's, that shows how much, um, not just attention, but also how much enthusiasm was behind the project, um, which makes it all the more sad that what became of it is what became of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's basically the track that the movie had um, as far as becoming what it was. It's, it, it had a really prestigious start and uh, it's one that still to this day gets a lot of prestige. People who win the fellowship get attention. Their movies still sell, their movies still get made. And uh, yeah, that's why we have Arlington Road. Yeah. It's just sad when I hear that to hear how much, Everyone believed in this movie. Every single person who read the script, I'm sure, knew this was going to be a hit. You got all the perfect actors for it. The The execution is absolutely flawless. This is one of the best set-up movies and storylines I've ever seen in a movie. It's mm-hmm. one of those, it's, it's, 
it's funny that we I keep getting you on for movies with twist endings, but this one kind of has a twist ending. <laughs> but, but it's like uh, this movie, it's got this killer twist kind of at the end, and it's one of those, like some movies when you know the twist, the movie's not as good the second time. Arlington Road is absolutely not the case. When you watch it a second, third, fourth time, you can see how well it's set up and how well they connect all the little pieces, and it just works out so nicely. And that's mm-hmm. the thing when I just hear these stories, like how how many people believed in this movie? They knew. They knew this was a hit. Mm-hmm. And it was a hit. This is a fantastic movie. This might be my favorite movie of the 90s. It's absolutely one of my top ten, maybe. Wow. And, again, it just was because of something that happened in the news, it just got bought, buried a little bit, and that's why it became a flop. And it's just, again, just it just goes to show you how many moving pieces and parts go into making a major major motion picture and how just one thing can derail it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just realized that we've been talking now for about 20 minutes, and we have barely touched on the fucking movie. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's the thing. We, we should were, probably do that. Yeah, we were talking about how we were going to knock this one off in an hour, and I know that's not going to happen because for some reason when I give you get you on, I get the most intricately plotted movies that must be explained down to the last detail, which is a problem. <laughs> like, it's not we're not we're talking about like freaking Dumb and Dumber here. <laughs> I'm sorry, but Dumb and Dumber is a masterclass of comedy writing. You can shut your whore mouth if you try to say otherwise. <laughs> Uh, but in reality, no. Actually, I would I would actually say Arlington Road. I mean, it's it's intricately designed, but I wouldn't say it's plotted with any strong complexity. Um, it's actually a very straightforward movie. Uh, it, it's when you see it a second time, you see all of the connections. You see all of all of the ways it's putting its pieces together, and there's there's. It's very clean. It's a very clean movie. Um, it's its intention is the same from start to finish. Its themes are uh, constantly at work from start to finish. Like there's there's nothing really obtuse or obscure about what it's trying to say and how it's trying to say it. Um, uh, it it's a, I, I would call it a muscular movie. It's it is it is muscular in how it tells its story. Um, and how the actors do their work, how the score hits you, how the, how it's shot, literally everything about it is, is all about flexing a muscle to make you react. And uh, unlike the village, which, which, you know, we, we can talk, we did talk all day about (laughs) how, um, how nuanced it was, how, how the detail is what truly mattered in that movie. This is filled. It's filled with detail, but those details are, are not meant to make you stop and admire and think and process necessarily. They're all parts of a greater whole. And that greater whole is what fucking sideswipes you (laughs) after an hour and 15, uh, an hour and 55 minutes. So, so yeah, I, I, that's what, that's what I would argue about that. Okay, well, to quote another movie, the screenplay is basically like a shark. All it knows how to do is move forward and eat and move forward and eat, and that's all it does. Yes. It's much more succinctly said than I did. Thank you. Well, that's why you're a screenwriter and I'm not. I'm just some jerk who runs a podcast. Uh, okay, I think we're definitely going to reach a point where I'm going to grab a second beer. So if you're about to explain a little bit of the plot, I'm going to step away for 30 seconds and mute my mic so I can get the beer and come back. And by then you'll be done your explanation. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm doing that now. You get into the plot. All right, so the plot of Arlington Road is thus. There is a uh, 
He's a professor. Jeff Bridges plays a college professor named Faraday, and he teaches a class called uh, American Terrorism or something like that. But basically, it's all about these homegrown terrorists in America, which, again, was a very big, valid plot point in America in the 90s. These were becoming a big deal, and they were it was becoming a big threat. Like you'd be an innocent person just in the wrong building at the wrong time. Some militia guy is going to park a van outside and blow up the building to make a statement. And all of a sudden innocent people would be killed in the name of patriotism. And again, this was a very valid thing. So he's running, he's a college professor. He's running a class. And, uh, what happens at the start of the movie is he's got some new neighbors that move into town. The Langs, Oliver Lang. And I believe his wife's name is, I want to say Cheryl. You are correct. By the way, I came back with my beer. All right. But I do want to say, before we get into the plot too far, one of the villains in this movie, the wife, Cheryl Lang, is played by Joan Mother Effing Cusack. Mm-hmm. And I've never, ever, ever, ever in my life seen her play a villain in anything else. Mm-hmm. Yet in this, she is the most cunning, evil, creepy villain responsible for one of the greatest jump scares in the history of movies. Yes. And I just... I, I'm. I thought that was such fantastic casting that they pulled Joan Cusack of all people, Miss Goofy character actress to play the villain. I just thought that was such inspired casting. Her and Tim Robbins are the villains in this, the Langs. And I, I, again, I could talk for an hour about how awesome they are, but Joan Cusack in particular, who thought that she could be a villain? I will just raise my hand right now and say, I did because my second favorite Joan Cusack performance of all time is from Adam's Family Values, where she plays the villain Debbie Jelinski. And it's a comical villain, yes, but still, my favorite things Joan uh, Cusack has ever done, they've been villains. And so when she got to be a straight villain here, as opposed to a goofy villain, oh, I got, I was so excited. And you're, yes, that jump scare is amazing. The scene, <laughs> the scene where. Don't spoil it yet. Don't spoil the details yet. I'm not spoiling it, but the scene where she has that beautiful transition from one um, from one strong emotion to another, and it's so fluid, and it's just it is so unsettling. But my my actual favorite moment of Joan Cusack in this movie is actually something you would blink and miss. And, and I'm you know, like spoiling a little bit of the plot, kind of, sort of. But Michael pretends to have uh, pretends to have lost his keys. He's locked out of his home, mm-hmm. so he's pretending to call a locksmith just so he can get inside Oliver's study and try to find things that he thinks might be there. And when Joan Cusack says, "Michael, you locked yourself out," and startles him, and it's a great thing where he's fumbling through an explanation of what he's trying to do. It cuts to Joan Cusack and. Just, I swear to God, study her face. Watch how she is reading Jeff Bridges in that moment. And she's listening to his words. She's gauging him. She's studying him. She's processing him. And there's a moment where her eyes sort of scrunch. Her entire body just shifts. (laughs) And then she realizes what she's doing. And she forces back the smile of Cheryl Lang. And I lose it every (laughs) single time I see that shot. Because that, to me, is actually more impressive. That is a world of... that, That is like the history of Cheryl Lang as both the mother, the wife... And the terrorist all in one. That is a five-second history of that character. And only Joan Cusack could have pulled that off. 
And I think it's the fact that she can be so homey and she can be so relatable and, and funny and cute and, uh, you know, just sort of the, you know, the friend next door that you can just sort of hang out and have potato salad and maybe a drink with. And then she will fucking blow you up with a bomb. <laughs> it's like, that's what the power of this movie gives us. It's Joan Cusack terrifying us. I hope you guys appreciate Brian's ability to weave a tale through his words right there. That sent that little paragraph or whatever that was about Joan Cusack <laughs> made me want to go watch this movie again. And I, I know this movie off the top of my head. I don't even have to watch it to do this podcast. He's making me want to go watch the scene he's talking about. Cause I never noticed that. So good. I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, let's go over the plot a little more here. Okay, so, yeah, Faraday is this teacher. He teaches uh, this terrorism class, and he's kind of a – he's intense. This is Jeff Bridges. He's very intense. He he knows all about these terrorists in America. He knows everything about them, and he's got a backstory, and that's the one thing we learn in the movie, that his wife died about, what, 14 months ago or something like that, two years? I forget how long fairly it was. Fairly recent. It was fairly recent, yeah. His wife worked for the FBI, and she was part of one of these raids that we talked about earlier in the movie like ruby ridge like waco where the government went in to check on somebody who was stockpiling guns turns out they had crossed information crossed wires that's not what was happening his wife died in this botched raid and he's still not over it yet he's still Mm -hmm. it's still haunting him and this will become a major storyline in the movie and at a certain point i guess brian we should just tell people just watch this movie before we finish this podcast Please do. Yeah, I don't want to ruin the... We're going to go over the whole ending and how it works and how awesome it is, but I really don't want this to be the first time you guys hear the ending. So if you are to this point in this podcast and you haven't seen it, please go watch this movie that that Brian and I feel so strongly about. And and, and I think this is... Yeah, that's it. That's that's their warning. If, if they haven't stopped this now, then they are listening at their own peril, and I don't give a shit how angry they are at us if we spoil anything. Um <laughs> We've already given away that the Langs are villains. Like we've already explained that Cheryl is monstrous in this movie, and Oliver's the. Um, lay it on us, Mario. I, I want. I want to hear how you deliver the brutality of what's to come. So yeah, so um, this is Faraday. He's got a kid, Grant, and again he teaches this class, and he's he's a little obsessed with just these idea of terrorists, uh, these urban terrorists living among us and blowing things up. And in the story, there's a a recent bombing that just happened in St. Louis. Obviously, it's meant to to stand in for the Oklahoma City bombing in real life, which had happened, like, literally two years before this movie. In this movie, it's St. Louis, and there was a guy named Dean Scobie, a lone wolf killer who parked a rider truck outside the federal building and blew it up because there was some dispute over taxes and it was determined to be the act of one person and he disputes this he doesn't think there was one person he thinks there was a big conspiracy that there was other people working together and and so his neighbors move in next door and the very first interaction faraday has with his neighbors is their son accidentally blows his thumb off playing with fireworks and so Faraday picks up this kid, takes him to the hospital, and that's how he meets these people, the Langs, who are the parents of this little pyromaniac. <laughs> and he just gets to know them. And he gets to know the Langs. And again, their son's name is Brady, is the same age as Faraday's kid. And again, uh, Tim Robbins, uh, Joan Cusack. And they just become neighbors. And it's one of these things where Faraday maybe doesn't have too many close neighbors. And he kind of laments that. He's like, you know, I, I've never really known our neighbors. I should get to know these people. They're new in town. And. And uh, so it goes well at first, and then he starts to suspect them. And I kind of, 
Uh, you may remember this off the top of your head. What is the tip-off point where he starts to suspect that these people might not be all they're cracked up to be? There's something wrong with this veneer here. Well, the thing is, there's multiple moments like that where where Michael's it, it, it's like like the whole movie. It's sort of like a parts of a greater whole where he'll see little bits like oh blueprints. Well, I mean, Oliver's a structural engineer, so he says. So I mean, he says he's working on the Reston Mall. Okay, great. Wait, this isn't a blueprint of a mall. This is a blueprint of an office building. Hmm. And then he sees in the mail that Oliver gets that uh, he's being sent a alumni letter from the University of Pennsylvania addressed to him. But he says, oh, this isn't me, um, because Oliver said he went to Kansas City State, Kansas State, the Kansas State University, not City State. Um, and uh, so they must have confused him with another Oliver Lang. But Michael notices in the mailbox that he just keeps getting those letters. And that's a little weird for someone who, you know, just isn't that person um those little bits add up but you you have one specific thought that i'm curious what it is yeah so he starts noticing that the the mail is coming to this lang guy and that's not his real name and lang's backstory doesn't match up with what he's told faraday his backstory is and then he starts noticing all these blueprints like you said there's all these blueprints around lang's house and and Faraday's mind just starts going wild with this because this is what he does for a living. He teaches a class on urban terrorism and he's like, these guys are hiding their past. He's got all these blueprints around their kid blew his hand off. There's explosives around. He's like, what's wrong with this picture? So this is what is known again. It's a, the, the colloquial term is just a paranoia thriller where he's going to suspect these guys are hidden urban terrorists kind of in a sleeper cell kind of hiding out in America waiting to make their move. And he suspects they may have had something to do with the bombing from St. Louis because, again, they move from St. Louis. They have blueprints of the arch. They, there's all these hidden things they're kind of hiding. And Faraday's mind just starts going wild here. Mm-hmm. And there's an especially poignant scene that I want to point out of this movie. Just it's so effective when you watch this movie later where we cut to Faraday in his class at George Washington University explaining urban terrorism and these big stories about people blowing up buildings to his class. And he talks about the St. Louis bombing and how at the end it was found that just one guy did it. It wasn't a conspiracy. And he, what is this quote? There's an exact quote he says, at the end of the day, the media needs to have one person to blame. They need to have someone to blame. Someone. That's how we get our sense of security back after a big terrorist bombing, after something happens, that even though it's a conspiracy, he's like, the media and the investigation will focus on one guy, and that's what will happen, is that it just makes us feel better. He goes, I know full well it wasn't one guy, but, you know, oh, we got this one guy, he's dead, he's not going to do it again, and it makes us feel better, and he goes on this big rant about how the media does this, how the media spins this and how this is the great tragedy of these stories that this guy becomes a martyr for the cause and he dies and nobody even knows why he did it but everyone just feels happy again thinking they're safe and boy does that scene play off later in the movie oh oh boy does it um yeah the beginning of this movie um sets up a lot of different things and i actually just want to touch on that really fast um the beginning of this movie tells us right away actually that it's lying to us that that's something that's always struck me. Um, for instance, the way we're introduced to these characters, mm-hmm. um, the movie lies to us. The movie gives us, for instance, when we see Michael burst through the hospital doors carrying Brady, the the, the Lang's son, who blows his hand partially off. 
Um, that is, it, it's a pure white hospital. He's, uh, Michael is shown from what's called the hero shot where you shoot from below, uh, the actor and you shoot up at them because they, and then they tower over you. They're lording over the camera. They're clearly dominating. Uh, he, he's carrying the child. He's, he's a, he, he, he's literally a hero in that shot. And the fact that it's pure white, he's good. He's good. Mm-hmm. He's a he is the good guy. Capital T, capital G, capital G. The first time we see Oliver and Cheryl, it is dark in the same hospital. You have no you would have unless you like it, what am I trying to say? You you could like start watching the movie at that moment, you would never know it was a fucking hospital. You would never know it was the same set because it's so dark. The shadows play on the walls so much that the walls look like black. Um, when Cheryl and Oliver walk in for the first time, they're silhouetted. They're in darkness. The movie is screaming to us, don't trust them. Don't trust them. But then Michael's first reaction is, oh, I can trust you. <laughs> and it's it's an example of how the movie is already starting to play with our expectations because what eventually happens to Michael is the exact opposite of how we meet him. The movie lies to us about how much of a hero he is because he's ultimately tee We'll get to that. Um, so, so there, there's these, there are these moments where we're meant to get a first impression, just like any good neighborly interaction. We're meant to get a first impression and the movie intentionally, shits on that first impression <laughs> um as because i mean that's just what these people do uh and then you build on that all, uh, where you have his first classroom scene as an example where he's introducing what the subject is american terrorism you see all of the students flipping through their pamphlets and their syllabi and looking at the photos of the terrorists and their work and terrorism throughout history which you could consider colonial america the revolutionaries to be terrorists Mm -hmm. uh they're included in that in that course um and as you're watching that scene you're seeing shots of the students listening intently and curious and a little like weirded out almost Mm -hmm. one of those shots includes a particular person who's nicknamed ponytail and we only see her in one shot and we're meant to see her only in one shot she's someone we're going to see later on multiple times but we're introduced to her as just a face in the background why because those are our enemies. Our enemies are often those who fade into the background. They're so easy to miss. Or you, as you would say uh, on the news, they were always so quiet. Um, it becomes the motif of the movie. It's so many of all, Oliver's colleagues. You know, you find them everywhere throughout, and they're meant to fade away. They're meant to not be seen, not be heard. They're like perfect Milford students, and. <laughs> like it, 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 when when you look at the theme of like who watches the watchers, and you look at the theme of who who truly is the terrorist here um it's it's it, it, high spaceship it gets it, like the creep factor when you rewatch the movie and you start to see the faces you didn't notice before mm-hmm. you start to see what was being watched how it was being watched what was being done um the movie plants so many seeds so beautifully um to amp up your paranoia and you don't even realize your paranoia is being amped up. It, it's so smart. It's so smart. I'm sorry. You go. You continue. Yeah, the movie is just manipulative as all hell, and you don't even notice it until the second time. And what he's saying is, yeah, all these background characters, you don't even notice the first time. 
you suddenly realize the second time there are all these allies of you know the terrorists of Oliver Lang, and they've been planted in this movie all over the place. And again, that's why I say the second and the third watchings of this movie add so many different layers to it, because what's going to happen is that Faraday, uh, Jeff Bridges, is going to start suspecting that his neighbor is a terrorist, and he's already kind of suspecting it, and now the terrorists are going to start indoctrinating him. They're going to start trying to lure him into their web, mm -hmm. and what I love about this movie is what you think they're doing is not what they're actually doing. And it's so well done where you'll see uh, Tim Robbins will kind of be alone with Faraday at some point. And he'll, he's heard the story of Faraday's wife that died in the FBI raid. And he knows that Faraday's all broken up about it. And Robbins will just drop little hints like, well, you know, somebody's got to pay for this, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody has to pay. And what you think they're doing is they're giving away that Lang is a terrorist. And that's not what they're doing at all. And I, again, I, I will save this for the very end. They're setting Faraday up for having his own little different story arc. Mm -hmm. But it's just, yeah, it's just amazing, all these little scenes of them dropping hints, like, well, somebody has to pay, and, you know, the government's not our friend. And you start seeing this from Faraday's point of view, that these people are terrorists, and they are not fans of the government, and there's something a little creepy going on at this house across the street. They're very insular. They, The kids are just creepy. They won't go outside. Nobody's allowed in the house. It's just, it's just there's something hinky about this, this family, and because Faraday has connections through his college, he has connections to, he has friends at the FBI, is this Agent Carver that he's friends with. He starts researching this Lang guy, and he finds out that Lang's not even his real name. His name is William Fenimore. He was arrested for blowing up a, a government office with a pipe bomb back when he was 16 in Kansas. And he apparently changed his name. So, again, all the paranoia is just building and building and swirling in Bridge's head, in Faraday's head. He knows this guy, this guy is a criminal. He's got a bombing background. He says all the things that terrorists say, that something has to be done about this guy. So he just researches it and researches it. And this is where it's all going to start spinning out of control in the last hour of the movie. But before we get to the last hour of the movie, I do have a question for you. Do you feel like, when do you feel like, because I have my own opinion very strongly of this, mm -hmm. that Oliver and Cheryl make the choice that Michael is someone they're going to exploit. When do you feel like that happens? Do you feel like that happens before we ever start the movie? Do you think that happens before Brady blows up his hand? Do you think that Brady blowing up his hand is part of a plot? <laughs> or do you feel like that that revelation for them happens organically as we're watching the movie? What do you think? This is a wonderful question because I was going to ask you something similar, and but it was, <laughs> was going to be a shorter question. <laughs> Did they make Brady blow his thumb off to draw Faraday into their plot? I think he was selected from day one because they knew his wife died in the government raid. He had a grudge against the government. I think they moved there intentionally. This whole thing was carefully orchestrated and set up so they would somehow enter Faraday's life. And the thing that always jumps out at me is that blowing off the thumb. Was that intentional? Did Brady do that on purpose? Did they make him do that? What exactly happened there? Because I think it was set up long before the start of this movie. And I think that's a completely valid answer. I offer the counterproposal mm -hmm. and i'm not saying one is more right than the other because i love that this movie just there's there's so much room for you to to have multiple answers and they're all right answers because the movie doesn't give you a definitive um uh a path one way or the other i could also strongly argue that oliver has no clue about michael mm -hmm. until michael makes the reference to his dead wife 
when they're at Oliver's house, the Brady coming home party. And, you know, they're barbecuing, they're having this, they're having that. Um, Michael and Oliver just drinking some beers at the end of the night after, you know, all the kids have calmed down and the party's kind of, you know, petered off. They've been talking for hours and hours, and this is the first time that Michael slips about his wife. Hmm. There's a sh- It's a two-shot of Michael in the foreground and Oliver in the background, and Oliver's out of focus. And then as soon as Michael makes the reference to, you know, my wife, you know, ever since my wife, uh, and he can't finish the sentence, uh, you have a rack focus to Oliver, and he turns his head. He hears that. And there's a beat where he's processing that before he continues on by saying, you know, something about, I, I forget the line that he says about Grant, Michael's son about, um, you know, how we help our children in times of crises. And then after that, you know, several scenes later, we have Oliver and Cheryl have Michael and Brooke, his girlfriend over to dinner. And you have Michael and Cheryl discussing politics, like, gritty stuff while Brooke and Oliver are talking about family life, you know, just good, wholesome things. And I would argue that it's that dinner scene where they are building profiles of Michael and Brooke. They're building legitimate profiles for what they're going to do because they have found their mark and they need to be ready. And when I think of it that way, no, Brady, it, this was not a setup from day one. This was not some kind of grand scheme where Brady was a Brady was a sacrificial lamb in a way. He's, I hope you, I hope you're not going to miss your thumb, little boy. Uh, and that it really could have just been an an interesting accident, an unfortunate coincidence. It, it makes it it makes it a different kind of movie, but for me, it makes it equally as interesting. Um, just different, just different. Yeah, and again, neither one of those is definitively right or wrong. It's, I do know that one of the criticisms of this movie, you'll see some of the earlier reviews, maybe not so many recent reviews, everyone seems to like it now, but at the time it was like, well, there's too many coincidences in this movie for to really buy that it could happen the way it did so perfectly. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I would say, if they just happened to move next to this guy and didn't even realize he had this backstory, and this guy happened to find their kid with his thumb blown off, and that he became the perfect mark, I could see mm-hmm. the criticism that this might be too many coincidences that's why i like my explanation better but i I don't know if it's right again you could be right that that's an entirely different way of reading the movie and again no one knows for sure i'd like to know i mean i'm assuming the guy who wrote the screenplay probably doesn't even know he leaves it open to your imagination oh no uh when we write we know the answer (laughs) that we have (laughs) but we're also cagey enough to know we don't say what we have as our actual answer because we uh part of the fun of what we do is that people will respond differently and we just sort of nod our heads and go i interesting that's (laughs) that's really fascinating like i'm glad you got that from this and we will never ever say what truly (laughs) are uh if it's if it's not definitive in the work we will never make it definitive for you if if we do then we're doing our jobs wrong um, so yeah, he, he knows, but he won't tell us. Okay. Well, suffice it to say it's not in the story. We don't know for sure. No, we don't. Okay. Let's, let's go, go through the ending and go towards the ending here that there's a couple really big standout scenes in this movie. And again, just watching this movie, I'm looking through all my notes, how many things I wrote down that I wanted to talk about. And we're only going to talk about like 10% of them because <laughs> this is not a three hour show, but yeah, there's some great scenes here where we finally see where Faraday is teaching his class about the raid where his wife died. 
and I don't know why psychologically healthy it's it's why he has to go to see the exact place where his wife died it's like a field trip with his class mm-hmm. let's go see where my wife died and he explains it and you see the flashback of his wife dying in this horrible raid just a gut-wrenching scene and you see why he's so angry that his wife didn't have to die it was just fbi bad information that sent his wife into a death trap and then we get these scenes over and over where he's researching trying to figure out what uh, fenimore is up to fenimore is lang's alter ego and again, this movie just loves to go back to the trope of somebody researching something and then suddenly the bad guy's right behind them and says, hey, what are you doing? And <laughs> there's a couple jump scares here, but I'm going to talk about what I call the jump scare of the gods. Please do. The greatest jump scare in a movie other than maybe the head coming out of the boat in Jaws and Jason Voorhees at the end of Friday the 13th or the other two I can think of. Maybe Exorcist 3. The hospital uh, corridor shot. I, I know that hospital corridor shot. I know exactly what you're talking about. The The jump scare of the gods is in this movie, and it's so effective because there's absolutely no lead up that a jump scare is coming. Like in these other movies, you know something's going to happen, and then it happens. This one, there's no, no warning at all. And I just love the way it's done where, and it's right, right where the shit's about to hit the fan right at the end of the movie where... Faraday has figured out these guys are up to something. They're going to bomb something in Washington, D.C. He doesn't know what they're going to do. He just doesn't know the deep, the last part of the plan. He knows something's coming. And all along the movie, his girlfriend, Brooke, has been the one holdout where she'll say, oh, you're paranoid. Oh, they're they're just nice people. That's Joan Cusack from Working Girl. That's She's not mean. And so Brooke, this one scene towards the end of the movie, she's out shopping one day, and she happens to see this delivery van and she sees Lang and he's dropping off a briefcase with somebody and she sees a big box bulky thing being loaded into the back of a van a big bomb looking thing and she's like oh my god Faraday could be right that he's actually right about these people and she goes to a phone booth and she calls him and she says you know I think you're actually right I think the Langs are scummy urban terrorists I saw everything I know exactly what they're doing I'm going to come home and talk to you and we'll talk about it and I, I can't believe I doubted you you were right all along and she hangs up the phone and swear to God, she turns around and there's fucking Joan Cusack right behind her. And it's the jump scare of the gods. There's no way that will not affect the f- person the first time they see it. It's absolute throw that popcorn because there's no warning that she's standing there. In fact, I, I just fast forwarded because I've, I've had this playing in the background. I just fast forwarded to um, that particular shot. And what makes that so effective is that we have this great crane shot of Brooke leaving her car, going to the payphone to make the call to Michael. Um, and when it cuts to the close-up of Brooke, um, she runs into frame to get to the phone. So there's nothing behind her mm-hmm. in that one spot. And and then there is a cut to an above uh, – a, a high angle above the phone. Um, there's a cut to Michael's answering machine clicking on from zero to one, showing it's getting a, a message. But then it cuts back to the exact same shot of Brooke. And it's not really a close shot. It's more like a medium close shot. So you can see a lot of wide um, vista from from both the, to the side of her and to the, uh, to the phone, to the side of the other phone. You, like you can see a lot of space. Um, there's no conceivable way for Joan Cusack to walk up to her without being seen. So it, it's it's like it's a shot that defies reality for Brooke to have done that, to have gone up to the phone and to have been able to make that call without us having even the slightest clue that Joan Cusack was walking up to her. But when Brooke turns around 
it, it's like as if Brooke and Joan Cusack occupied the exact same <laughs> amount of space in the frame. Literally, all it takes is Brooke to slightly shift and you start seeing Joan Cusack. It is one of the most expertly framed jump scares. And you're right. It makes it's the daddy, the mommy, the every parent of jump scares. It's in the theater when we saw that double feature, literally everyone screamed, <laughs> screamed. <laughs> no one had a clue that was coming. Nor did I. I screamed. I didn't care. I loved it. Yeah, God bless it. God bless her. God bless it. What I love about that shot in particular is they don't cheat. There's not a musical stinger that kind of emphasizes the jump scare. Yeah. It's so well done that you jump just from the reveal. And again, I cannot say enough about that. Anybody who has gotten to this point in the podcast and has not seen this movie, shame on you. Turn this off and go watch this movie. This is astounding just how manipulative that shot is. And, and it's even better because, you know, Cusack has discovered, or they, I'm assuming they know all along that Brooke and Faraday are onto them, and the look on Joan Cusack's face when she catches her. And then they have this really tense conversation, and my wife and I just quote this endlessly, where uh, Cusack's like, and what were you doing? And... And Brooke's like, well, I was just out shopping. And, oh, what were you doing here? And Joan Cusack just gets that weirdest look on her face. And she nods and she says, shopping. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, Brooke's dead five minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> so they kill Brooke. And boy, is that, I, yeah, that's, even with, again, if this movie has one of the best endings I've ever seen in a movie. But even if it didn't, I would recommend it just for that jump scare alone, how awesome it is. Absolutely. And as soon as that death happens, as soon as Brooke dies in a car accident, and of course it's always a car accident, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and Michael learns that she's dead. And he learns this, by the way, by coming home and seeing it on the news, and he runs out the door without checking his answering machine. And the answering machine might not have the message Brooke left anymore, just saying. Mm -hmm. um, and he spirals into despair. He learns from his, uh, his friend Whit Carver, the FBI agent, who is his wife's partner, which we I don't think we mentioned. His wife's partner yes. is the FBI agent that Michael still talks to and the FBI agent who is sympathetic and is looking after Michael as best he can just to be sure he's all right, but also does not want to become Michael's fall guy. Right. He even says when Michael brings up, hey, you know, the offer's still there for you to come and talk to the class. Wit says, I'm, I don't want to stand trial for you. So so Wit already knows that that's the kind of relationship that's being reestablished between what used to be close friends. Um, when when Wit tells Michael that he had reconsidered and said, OK, maybe I will come to your class. He left a voicemail for Michael and Michael's like, I didn't get any message. I didn't get any message. I'll call you back. And that's when he realizes that they're in his home. Mm -hmm. They are tapped in, as it were. Um and so he decides, that's it. This is my mission. He goes after Dean Scobie's father. He asks questions. He's trying to learn what would make your son do this when I know he didn't. In St. Louis. Make sure you In clarify yeah. that. Yeah, he goes to St. Louis to talk about the guy who got who bombed the St. Louis bomb building. It's it's Michael and his and this guy's father both agreeing, yes, my son would never do this. Yes, I know your son would never do it. But please help me understand because – Obviously, the world disagrees. And that's when something terrifying happens. And that is uh, when the beginning of the movie connects to now. Because the thing is, Oliver 
told Michael about this great sort of like younger version of Boy Scout Cub Scouts called Junior Discoverer Troops. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that leading into the last 20 minutes. Okay, the last 20 minutes of the movie are going to start right here, and they all start with this subplot that you don't realize is important, the Junior Discoverer Scouts. Yes, there's a just like Boy Scouts, except for younger kids, as described to Michael. So so Michael's son Grant's is just depressed and his mother is dead and he doesn't really have any friends. And so Brady becomes his first real friend in a long while. And Brady is a member of the discoverer, the junior discovery troop that uh, is local to that area of Virginia. And uh, Oliver convinces Michael, you know, Grant should do this. And so Grant does. And uh, we see a scene of the injury of, you know, uh, Brady and Grant sort of reaffirming their oath to the junior discovery troop. It's just like Boy Scouts. And we see one shot of the troop master, just one, uh, to, to get a very quick sense of who he is. And later on, as Michael and Dean Scobie's father are trying to figure out, you know, what could have happened beyond your son doing this, because we know your son didn't do this bombing of St. Louis. Um, we see a photograph of Dean Scobie as a junior discoverer troop mentor. And we see Brady in the same photo and we see the same troop master mm-hmm. in the same photo. And Michael realizes, holy shit, they are going from place to place. They are setting things up. He realizes at that moment, Dean Scobie was a fall guy yeah. and he, he races back to Virginia to get his son from the junior discoverer troop uh, camp that uh, he's been sent to, uh, which who, what kid wouldn't want to go to that? Well, let's fix that. And the thing is when Michael arrives at the camp, they say, no, sir, you've already picked up your son. This is weird. Michael's like, no, I'm his goddamn father. I'm, I'm here to pick up my son. I called. They said, yes, but you called twice, sir. You called to let us know that there was an accident at home and, you know, uh, to send our to send your son home so that, you know, he could get to you faster. And Michael's like, no, no, no. And they he's told that Brady Lang also went home with grants and the troop master drove them home. That same troop master who seems to be where terrorism happens. Oh no! <laughs> Michael gets to the Oliver Lang household and sees a very Lynch, David Lynchian party taking place, and the confrontation confirms uh, when he approaches Oliver. Yes, his son is being held, and if Michael wants his son back alive, he will shut the fuck up and he will keep being a good neighbor. Until things are done. Oliver won't say what. Oliver won't say when. But he will... He he promises that Grant will be okay. Yeah. As long as you stay a good neighbor. And you are a good neighbor. Like, just, just the emphasis Oliver hits certain things with. It's so great. Including the last lines of, Now, we're having a party. You're more than welcome to stay. <laughs> it's so freaking creepy. Yeah, okay. So let's set this up for people. The last 20 minutes of the movie, we learned that the Boy Scouts, a.k.a. the Discoverer Scouts, is the big connection in this movie that uh, theoretically what's happening is these Discoveries troops are moving around the country from place to place. They're recruiting these right-wing families, you know, 
fall guys and stuff. They're setting them up, and then that's the connection. That's this this whole little group, as as Lang will say later in the movies. There's thousands of us, Michael, ready to take up arms. And that's the scary thing about this movie, as Brian said earlier, that they're all in the all in this movie in the background. You'll notice them later. That Faraday's whole life has been these terrorists setting him up and trying to get into his life and set him up and feed him all the information he needs to know. Again, he doesn't realize yet. He doesn't realize that he's the patsy, that Michael's the one that they're going to set up to do this bombing, and that's what is so amazing here coming up here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so these... And again, the Discovery Scout troop, I, I, I don't want to get too much in trouble. I am a Boy Scout leader. I've been in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts for many years. It's a wonderful organization. I love it. I don't want to get in trouble. But <laughs> if you are going to recruit right-wing anti-government people, that's probably where you'd go. Whoops. I mean, not to paint, paint too broad of a brush, but it's quite a right-wing organization from my experience in it. And 24 hours after this podcast drops, Mario will receive a call. Oh, yeah. No, my house was blown up. Yeah, my house was blown up. So I'm going to try to get this podcast out quickly and get my uh, my uh, life insurance in order. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll tell the world your story. <laughs> yeah, so that's what happened in St. Louis. These Cub Scouts got involved with SCOBY. They set him up. They pulled off this bombing. The media found that one guy was responsible, and all the rest of the conspirators moved on here to D.C., where they're about to pull something off in D.C., and they won't tell him when. Lang says, it's going to happen. I'm not going to tell you. Just be a good neighbor. Just shut up and go back to your house. But, and here's the catch, they have his son. Since his son was on a a scout camping trip, they have him somewhere hostage. And so Faraday can't do anything. He's impotent at this point. He's been neutered. He can't tell anybody. He can't warn anybody. All he can do is try to stop it when it happens. And that is why the ending of this movie works so well, because they've written this screenplay into a storyline where it is absolutely realistic that Faraday is unhinged. He's alone. He has no allies. And the first minute he sees what he thinks is a bomb being delivered to somewhere in D.C., he's going to follow it because he's going to be the guy that stops it. He His paranoia has reached the point where he – okay, so something I wrote down about what one of the biggest themes of this movie is, is that you see what you want to see and you hear what you want to hear. And it applies to so many different relationships and events that take place. Um, we are shown Oliver and Cheryl, like I mentioned before, the way we're introduced to Oliver and Cheryl, where they're silhouetted, they're in darkness. They're clearly not given the most warm introduction to the viewers. Uh, they are ominous looking, but the thing is, that's not how Michael sees them. Michael sees them as something very different than what we are seeing them as. Um, it applies to Michael's descent into madness uh, in the third act. He sees what he wants to see and hears what he wants to hear as a, as a, in terms of the instant he sees Grant in the back of that truck. He only believes one thing, that that truck, that that, that van has uh, – um, his son and a bomb in it, and that that is truly what Michael needs to stop. Um, his son is going to die at the FBI building because he believes that that truck is going to the FBI building, and that uh, anything else that happens around him, anything else that anyone else says, isn't reality. Only what he believes is reality. Is reality, and you can play into whole existential topics like, oh well, of course we create our own reality in our minds, and yes, fine, yes, you have your own perception, but in the context of this movie, the paranoia 
does literally build a world that's not real for Michael. And yet elements of it are real. Yes, Oliver is truly a villain and and you know he truly is chasing after his son because he sees his son in the back of this van, but but those are like little pinpricks in the world Michael is creating for himself. Um you you have you know people see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear when they're victims, when they're watching a tragedy, when they're witnesses to it and afterwards. For instance, we need a name. We need somebody to blame. No, you don't. What if that's not the case? What if it's an organization? What if it's a team? What if it's more than one person? That doesn't matter. That's not clean. That's not definitive. That's not simple enough. We need a name. So if you tell people, I'm sorry, but this is actually a network that's been working and operating for years, and they've been committing atrocities left and right. People can't handle that. That doesn't fit into their world. They don't hear it. So there's there's a really rich, dark, depressing sociological uh, theme taking place in this movie, especially towards the end of it in the third act, where the paranoia and 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 the thriller elements are coming into full bear. But it's also touching on how emotionally the movie has been building up to this point as well and yeah it's it's why the last five minutes of it hurts so much is because the movie lies to us but we also lie to ourselves the fact that we lie to ourselves is why we not only can sometimes create our own hell but convince ourselves that it's not a hell to begin with that to me is what arlington road is ultimately about yeah, I was gonna say you're bumming me out, and I already know. The, I already, I already know the end of this movie, and you're still bumming me out. So nice work there. You're welcome. Okay, so let's go into the last ten minutes of the movie again. One of the most interesting and I think well done endings I've ever seen to a movie. And what's astounding is when I watch this movie over and over is how little they actually cheat. Yeah, like it actually is played pretty fairly. And there's a couple coincidences that have to happen in this movie for it to work, but Mm -hmm. I really don't think it's that outlandish. That's, I know, one of the things that Roger Ebert had a problem with this movie that's too wrapped up nicely in a bow at the end, end. but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it works pretty well. Okay, so let's go to the ending here where, again, Faraday knows something's coming in D.C. He hasn't figured out the target. He doesn't know when, but he knows the terrorists have his son, and they basically have his balls in a vice at this point. He can't do anything the minute he warns somebody his son's dead. So he's kind of doing surveillance. He's just kind of staking them out, following their trucks. He knows they're using these Liberty vans. He knows that they have these big, bulky things being loaded up in the vans, and he's just kind of tailing them. And then one day... um. As he's uh, is just driving around tailing them, this becomes D-Day. Something's going to happen today. He knows it's going to happen. And as he's tailing them, he sees his son pop up in the back of one of these vans with the Scoutmaster. And he's like, Grant! And he freaks out. And he starts fl- flying after this car. And basically what's in his mind is that there's a bomb in that van. It's about to be delivered to somewhere in D.C. It's going to blow up. My son's going to be in the back. They're going to sacrifice him. And I must stop this. I'm the only man who can stop this. So... He's flying after this van. It's this big car chase through Washington, D.C. 
And at a certain critical point in the chase, he kind of gets intercepted. Tim Robbins, Lang pulls his car out in front. Jeff Bridges stops and they involve, they get in this big fist fight. The two, the, you know, the good guy against the bad guy trying to stop, trying to stop the bombing from happening. And this is the key scene. And you don't notice this until the second time you see the movie is that when they're fighting, Lang drags Faraday out away from his car into a warehouse so they can fight kind of in private and argue about this. And, you know, it's, it's this big moment where Lang starts kicking his ass and then Faraday, you know, rallies at the end and ends up beating up the bad guy and running out to his car and continues to chase the bomb. And this is the, the really the neat scene about this movie. And you don't even know it's coming because you're so sure that a bomb's being delivered and Faraday has to stop him. You don't realize that was the scene where they put the bomb in the trunk of Faraday's own car. And it's such an awesome reveal because you don't catch this for in about five minutes. So you're going to get the big reveal. The uh, I was going to say the big bang. Perhaps that's not the best word here. But so, yeah, Faraday starts chasing the Liberty van. At some point, the terrorists have switched the vans. They they have they take the one with Grant off to the side. They replaced it with another one with just some Patsy in it. And Faraday's chasing this guy. He thinks this is the van with a bomb in it. And he's just going nuts. He's driving through D.C. He's just cutting people off, going on sidewalks, screaming, "I have to stop that van. It's going somewhere." And this is when he learns it's going to the FBI building. It's going to the FBI headquarters, the J. Edgar Hoover building in D.C. And it's basically, this is Lang is going to take out the entire FBI. And so Faraday calls his friend, Whit Carver. And this is an important scene that you may not realize the significance of until the second time you see the movie, that he calls Whit. He says, they're bombing the FBI building. They're coming there now. Get everybody out of there. They're coming to kill you. And so this is, will become important down the road. Why Whit is going to let Faraday into the garage underneath the building. And I will let you handle this because you have a way of words. Why don't you... Describe how the last couple minutes of Arlington Road, the maybe biggest gut punch in the history of movies. So after we have Michael and Oliver uh, engage in their confrontation, uh, where fists are flying and blood sprays from both Michael and Oliver, we hear certain things like uh, Oliver's walkie-talkie. Uh, you can hear him say over it, Liberty One, I've got your shadow. Go ahead. Later on, a few minutes later, after Michael has already uh, overpowered Oliver and is like trying to get information out of him, you can hear over the walkie someone else say, Liberty 2 set, Shadow 1 go. Mm. Little tiny touches <laughs> that you don't realize what's being said until you rewatch the movie. Uh, once Michael stops, like, like puts, Al puts Oliver out not like unconscious, but like he's immobile and he's in pain and he's been beaten to hell. And uh, Michael gets back in his car, gets to the FBI. Uh, he's already called wit. Wit comes down. Michael is screaming to the security guards. That's the van. That's the van. There's a bomb in the goddamn van. And wit is screaming, Michael, please stop. The security guards are saying that van is authorized. That's, that is a van that's supposed to be here. That's the new delivery. There's nothing wrong here. Um, the Michael says, screw it and charges into the parking garage. He goes over the security barrier even. Uh, and of course the alarm is set. So guards all over the place rush into the garage to stop him. And as we're seeing that we get little cuts to people who are nearby the building, such as the ponytail girl <laughs> who we saw in his class, listening intently to what he had to say about American terrorism. Uh, so as Michael gets out of his car in this garage, he's running to the van and FBI agents are surrounding him, trying to stop him. Uh, but of course he's a white man, so he wouldn't be shot. They're <laughs> willing to just, you know, 
try to reason with him. Interesting how that works. Uh, he's screaming, there's a bomb in the van, there's a bomb in the van. And finally, the driver is pulled out of the van. And it's not the driver that Michael saw. And the FBI agents open the doors to the van. And it's empty. The son is not in there. The scoutmaster is not in there. The van is clean. And Michael does not understand what's happening. He, he, is he losing his mind? What's, what, what is this? And finally, it takes wit saying these words to make Michael realize what's happening. Michael, the van's authorized to be here. The van is authorized to be here. We're all authorized to be here. Everyone except you. And his eyes widen. And he looks to his left and he sees his car and he races for it. And as he's racing for the car, we get little cutaways to the scoutmaster and his son as they're walking into a museum with Cheryl and the other Lang children. We cut to the driver of the van who just dropped them off as he has a briefcase on his driver's, uh, the, the front passenger seat. And he opens it and it's a detonator. Michael's racing for the trunk of his car. And as Oliver walks across the roof of the building he was you know, knocked out at to, to get a good vantage point of the FBI building and the detonator is about to be triggered, Michael reaches his car and he opens the trunk and he sees that C4 was planted in his car and he is the bomber. And you have the corny shot of Oliver saying boom as the trigger is detonated by the driver of the Liberty van and the FBI building is destroyed. Michael is killed. Whit Carver is killed. Hundreds of FBI agents are incinerated in an explosion that literally destroys the J. Edgar Hoover building. And then we fade out. And we start to hear the sounds of screaming and panic because we're watching news broadcast footage. And you hear reporters say, you know, we don't know what's happening. All we know is this was massive, an explosion. There's an explosion and there are victims everywhere. Just all kinds of on the scene live reporting that you would hear in a situation like this. And you start to hear the day after conversations from news anchors. And as you're looking at footage of people processing this tragedy and then slowly start to get on with their lives, people just crossing the street, just getting on with their day as happens in terrorism. And then we hear a news anchor say, preliminary reports indicate that the bombing was the work of this man, Michael Faraday of Reston, Virginia. And as we fade into that news anchor, we see that the Chiron on the screen next to her is Michael's picture. Michael is being blamed for the bombing. And it goes on to explain that they have, dis they, they have investigated uh, and come to the conclusion that he was distraught over his wife's death, blamed the Bureau, and wanted to make them pay, especially her former partner, Whit Carver, who died in the explosion. And as that gut punch hits us, we start to see interviews of his students you know he was a really intense guy it was my favorite class but you know he practically broke down crying in front of us talking about his wife's death like it was really weird and surreal and then we got the ponytail girl P 
ponytail girl also gets a, an interview with the news and she says, you know, I, I, he, he talked to me after class one day and, you know, I'll never forget it. He said, sweetheart, one day those men are going to pay. One day those men are going to burn. And guess what? People hear what they want to hear. She's lying through her teeth. No one cares. Mm-hmm. No one will ever know because she says exactly what people want to hear, which is that Michael Faraday, our hero, is the one man who wanted to bomb the FBI and did so, which I also want to point out. It's a fun little visual gag, even though it's kind of bleak that during this montage of news footage and people getting on with their lives and just sort of like how America reacts to its own terrorism. There's one shot of a theater, a movie theater and the movie theater shows the title of the movie that's playing. It's just one movie title, and it's Dirty Work. The uh, Norm MacDonald classic. And you only see it for a split second. Yes, the Norm MacDonald classic, but that is so fucking thematically appropriate that Dirty Work is the title of the movie, the spectacle that we go to see to be entertained by. Dirty Work is what we see as we're <laughs> seeing Michael Faraday become the fall man of this. And we learn that his son Grant is now going to be placed in the care of relatives. We see Grant in this in the back of a car, broken, perhaps forever, as he's driven away. And Oliver and Cheryl are at the porch on their front front yard, just waving at him goodbye. And Cheryl and Oliver discuss where they're going to go next. They hope that they go someplace safe. <laughs> I love that line. Someplace safe. Mm -hmm. And we pull back after we see that the Faraday house is now boarded up, taped off. This sort of crypt of a terrorism practitioner, this diabolical mind's home is just walled off. Sort of like a, a circus freak exhibit. The Langs just walk back into their house. The peaceful serenity of the suburban life, as if nothing ever happened. Before they move on to their next suburban life. <laughs> and another, and another, and another. And oh my god, Mario, this movie is so dark! <laughs> Our hero not only dies, he's not only killed by the villain, but he becomes the villain! Unwittingly! And the villains walk away, shrugging their shoulders, going... Well, that happened. Let's do it again. <laughs> Just another Pleasant Valley Sunday here in Status Symbol Land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a dark ending. And again, it's I cannot get over again how bleak this movie is that not only do the bad guys win, which you don't see enough in you know mainstream movies where the bad guys unequivocally win here. It's not even close. They somehow frame the guy, the one guy who was the hero of the movie, who was trying to stop them. They set him up, and it's so intricate how they've been doing this the whole movie, giving him a motive, giving him means, giving him the opportunity where when the news happens and we find out Faraday is the one that blew up the FBI building, we know the truth. We've seen the movie, but nobody cares, like Brian said. And like Faraday said earlier in the movie, he predicts his own demise. He spells out exactly what's going to happen to him in this movie that 
one person's going to get blamed, even though it's clear there was a bigger conspiracy, but nobody cares because we just want, as Americans, as the world, we want that one name that we can say, he did it. He was different than us. Mm -hmm. He was obsessed. He had a reason to hate the government, but other people don't do that. It makes us feel safe because we have the one perpetrator. And again, it's just so bleak on so many levels that you just are astounded that this movie was made. And again, I, I didn't see this in the theater. I can only imagine I because it was it was buried. It was just you kind of forgot about it. It didn't get a big sh uh, market share. Mm -hmm. I saw it on video many months later. And I'm like, my God, that is the greatest movie I have ever seen. And I've been singing its praises and hyping it ever since. And that's again, there's no way we can capture how bleak and just what a absolute kick in the nuts this movie is at the end where it's just everything that you know about what's good and right and fair in the world is not what happens in this movie. It's the exact opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, again, like people talk about Empire Strikes Back being so dark. <laughs> like, that's like a fairy tale compared to this movie. That's not even close. Yeah, not, not even remotely close. It, it's something that, uh, as a writer, like even I, and I write dark shit, I, my 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 original material, unless you know, it's like I'm collaborating with someone or um, like I'm I'm pitched something. Hey, would you ever think about that? My original stuff tends to be on the darker side, and I look at Arlington Road, I look at what it does, and even I go, I'm not brave enough to write that. Mm -hmm. I am not brave enough to go that hard into dark territory like it, it, it's it, it all it reminds me of another movie and i don't know if you've seen it there or either version of it um there's a movie called funny games and there's an original version uh i forget which i forget if it's a german language movie uh, michael hanukkah directed it and wrote it um, but then he did a remake of it he remade his own movie like a few years later um <laughs> with tim roth and uh naomi watts and michael pitt and brady corbett and that is a movie that to me is very comparable to arlington road um and if anyone who listens to this goes to check out arlington road for the first time they're like oh my god this really is dark but i really liked it in a weird way and i thought it was really compelling and this and that i would encourage you to check out funny games because funny games is very much in the same vein in that we're given a setup of uh something dark and dangerous about to happen the movie promises us from the beginning not only is everything going to go wrong for these people but they're all going to die and the cycle will continue the movie goes out of its way to make you feel like shit <laughs> every step of the way. Um, so if you like bleak, if you like dark, if you like the feeling you get from Arlington Road when you watch the ending and you go, oh, my God, I cannot believe they went there. Check out Funny Games. But, yeah, as far as American cinema is concerned, I feel like Arlington Road is comparable to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers in, in an ending that you hope doesn't come. You really, really pray almost doesn't come. You can't believe it's going to come because a movie can't end like that. It just can't. And yet there it is. It fucking uppercuts you. <laughs> I, I, to me, Arlington Road is not about the ending of the movie. It's not about how well it delivers that uppercut. There's so much more in play here. The uppercut's just so easy to talk about. Because mm -hmm. um, we <laughs> how can you not? But the uppercut is really just the punchline to a glorious hour and 50 minute setup 
of what we are as people. And I've seen very few movies that are able to explore that so much like a premonition. Like I said before, when we started this, like this is a premonition of what we are, what we've become. And to, to examine it in the lens of 9-11, to examine it in the lens of American terrorism as it is now and, and what people consider to be terrorism, depending on what affiliation you have politically, ideologically, it, it's this movie carries so much more weight now has so much more meaning and is so much more i would say valuable and vital as a character piece as a plot piece and just just as something to study mm-hmm. uh it's a fun experience it's a dark experience but it's also the meaning it, it like a fine wine it had to age for a while and i feel like the age has made this one of the absolute greats. I've loved I've loved it since it came out, but now is where I think it truly stands up with the greats of American cinema. Yeah, I know we're kind of running long here, like we're running running up on my hour and a half cut cut off on these on these podcasts. But I was gonna say, like we could talk another hour on the fact that this movie is even about the media. Like we didn't even mention that how the yeah. media influences how they cover stories, how they're remembered, how yeah. you move on and just move into on and just wait until the next big media tragedy everybody can talk about. The cycle just yeah, has the to cycle. repeat, and then you just move on. It forces you to move on because it's talking about something else. Why are you talking about the same thing? We've moved on. Why haven't you? It's it pressures you as a human being yeah. to follow it. Yeah, you're you're not you're not the leader. You're the follower. The media tells you. Yeah, there's so many topics and ideas and thoughts and themes you come out of this movie with, and that's why I said it's so much more of a rich viewing experience and more an active viewing experience I would say than most movies just because like you come out of this movie and you want to talk about it when I came out in 1999 like I could even say if I trace the genesis of this podcast back to when I first saw Arlington Road in 1999 Mm -hmm. I want to talk to people about this movie (laughs) more people need to discuss this movie because it's so interesting so again if that's the one thing that I mean, there were 20 things that we hope you take from this podcast, and it's funny that, you know, you and I came off The Village, our other episode, where there's 20 things we had about that podcast we want you to talk about. Like, maybe next time we'll have to do something really simple, because we've been given the, the uh, tougher tasks on some of these movies here, I would say. We have, but I think that's because I think you threw me The Village and you threw me Arlington Road here because we're able to talk about them like they're not these aren't throwaway episodes like like you you walked into both of these movies knowing these were not going to be the easiest episodes mm-hmm. um and i'm i'm lippy and have opinions and so it's <laughs> easy for me to contribute to to this kind of discussion where um you know it's it's below the surface a lot of the time what's going on and high spaceship yes uh so so yeah I feel like I feel like any podcast where you're truly appreciating the unappreciated has to tackle Arlington Road and and I'm so happy to be a part of the episode that does that. <laughs> um like to me it's a 19 year uh circle finally completed. Even though we we could we've only hit on yeah 10 15 20% of what we could talk about. I'm I still feel satisfied because we've at least been enthusiastic we've at least we've done what we did with the village we could have talked with about the village for another few hours just like this but we gave i feel like enough about the village that made people try to revisit it and realize oh wait there is actually something happening here 
And I feel like they'll do that with Arlington Road, too, because it deserves it. And uh, if they don't, then they can burn in hell. (laughs) I was just going to say The Village, for people who have been listening to me all along, is probably my most popular episode so far. That's the one I hear about the most. That The Brady Bunch movie has the most downloads just because there's so many Brady Bunch fans out there. But if there's one episode I hear the most feedback about, it's The Village. So, again, Brian, I just really want to thank you for coming in here and stepping in and uh, really discussing these really meaty D- discussable movies that's uh i'm sure next time i uh have you back it'll be something like the tom green classic freddie got fingered um no <laughs> it won't the, yeah the jackass movie jackass and jackass 2 how about those honestly i i think if i do come back for a third time which let's be honest it's probably gonna happen um <laughs> I, can we do something lighter like i love talking about drama i love talking about thriller horror all of that but I won't be against a comedy if you throw it at me. Uh, just, just FYI. Um, I'm sure now that being said, it'll be like, what, The Passion of the Christ? Oh, yeah. Passion of the Christ, something like that. Yeah. Schindler's List. <laughs> the feel-good romp. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, no, it's uh, the talking with you about movies is always a pleasure. And I do hope to do it again. But uh, if I don't, I'm happy that I've been able to do it about the village and about Arlington road. These are movies that are absolutely underloved. And if, if, if we just get one or two people at the most to, to revisit them or to see them for the first time and to, to, to be able to appreciate them, that's a mission accomplished. And, uh, uh, I hope, I hope people give it a shot. It, it's in this current climate, it is a movie more relevant than ever. And uh, I feel like uh, it'll it'll push a lot of buttons. Yeah. Good buttons, scary buttons, sad buttons, fun buttons. <laughs> There's a lot of buttons to push. Also, if you have a neighbor that you hate and you want to set up, <laughs> this is a good way. It's like a how-to manual on how to turn your neighbor into a patsy. So that's another another fun fact about this movie. Mario, it's it's one twenty in the morning, and I just laughed so loud I probably woke up my neighbor. So. Okay, well I'll sign off here again. I, I again I just I can't say enough about you joining me. They're always fun discussions. And again, for all my listeners, thank you for listening to these episodes. If you want to talk to me, if you have any feedback, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail dot com. You can reach me uh, email or Twitter at Mario J Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there searching for more underrated, underloved movies. And more than likely, until then, I will be at the mall shopping. (laughs) Talk to you guys later. Boom. Those men are going to pay. One day those men are going to burn. 